0: Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me for the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And thus far, reading of God's holy word.) <clears throat> The Apostle Paul was facing some adversaries in the city of Corinth who were very aggressive in their tactics, and they were impressive in their appearance. Men had come from out of town, and some speculate perhaps they had come from the mother church, the church in Jerusalem itself, claiming that they were authorized by the original apostles. And they were infiltrating the church that Paul had planted in Corinth. And one of their, tax, their tactics was to attack Paul's ministry and to seek to undermine his authority as an apostle of Jesus Christ. Among the other grandiose plan, or claims that they made for themselves, it seems that they also claimed the authority to add some additional details to that pure and simple gospel of Jesus Christ that Paul preached, that's the crisis that Paul addresses one chapter earlier in chapter eleven of Second Corinthians. And to go even back further to chapter ten, Paul describes these men as boastful about their imposing presence and their eloquent speech, their claim of superior knowledge, and their impeccable religious pedigrees. And so Paul labels them sarcastically super apostles. Paul simply despised their boasting. His motto in chapter 10, verse 17 is this, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. But Paul may have been recalling, it occurred to me as I looked at this text, he may well have been recalling the Old Testament proverb, this is in Proverbs twenty. Uh, 6, chapter 26, verse 5, answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. That has always intrigued me because the proverb right before it, verse 4 in Proverbs 26 says, answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Apparently there are times if we have possessed sufficient discernment well, we don't bother answering someone because we'll be drawn into just a foolish argument. Other times, it's necessary to rebuke someone who is uttering and practicing foolish things. I remember uh, so vividly, many years ago, I was out visiting hut to hut, really, in Uganda with a very gifted young pastor, Moya David, who I would love to be able to see again next month. Uh, and we were walking through a trading village where there are a number of old men, namely my age, I would be considered quite an old man in those villages, sitting around uh, drinking uh, from a clay pot a very foul brew called pamba, pombe, uh, a banana wine that the, I won't go into all the details, but the fermentation process is started by old women spitting into the pot And it goes downhill after that. So they were getting uh, pickled, as they say. I guess the old Wisconsin word is schnockered. And we walked by them, and they yelled out in their native tongue, come over and preach to us, missionary. Come over and preach to us. I got the gist of what they were saying. And Moya says, old gentleman, muse in the language, not till you sober up. It'd be useless to speak to you. You'd only cast these pearls before the swine. You'd cast them on the dirt. And uh, they were stunned. And I was uh, how wise this young man was. He did not seek to answer these fools and their folly. And knowing how thoroughly he tried to evangelize his neighborhood, perhaps some of them did sober up, and he brought the gospel to them. Well, in the case of Paul, he's going to play the fool's game to expose the folly of these false apostles. Verse 1 of chapter 12, Paul says, I must go on boasting, though there is nothing to gain by it. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. In other words, Paul is not going to waste our time by speaking of any lesser experiences. Instead, he goes straight to the extraordinary revelation of heaven that God gave to him. And so the first point is a man in Christ in his experience. We see that in the opening six verses of 2 Corinthians 12. Paul relates the supernatural experience of a man in Christ. So who is this man in Christ? Well, there should be no doubt in our minds that the man is Paul himself. But why does Paul refer to himself in the third person? And I suspect that he is showing a a degree of modesty. He doesn't want to boast. And also a certain measure of discomfort in relating this experience. As far as we know, Paul hasn't told anyone about this experience that happened 14 years earlier. Paul says in verses 3 and 4 that he was caught up into paradise. And he heard things that cannot be told which man may not utter. I pause for a moment and I think of some years back, there was a rash of people who claimed to have died for five minutes or 30 minutes and have been transported to heaven. And they weren't reluctant to share for a fee, if buying a book, what what they saw. And uh, I didn't buy the book, but I confessed to glancing through it in the bookstore. And I said, if that's heaven... (laughs) I'm not sure I'm eager for a place like that. It was ethereal, it was cloudy, it was light, it was, it was, you know, and I thought back to this text. Paul heard things that he could not tell, which man may not utter. He was forbidden to utter those things. But whether this was a revelation of heaven, Paul says whether it was in the body or out of the body, Paul didn't even know. Was it a vision or a dream while he was remaining here on earth? Or was he in some way physically transported temporarily, temporarily to heaven and then brought back to earth? Paul seems to be uncertain about that point. But however it happened, Paul revealed things to Paul, or rather God had revealed things to Paul that were so glorious and so wonderful he can't even talk about them. What a spectacular privilege Paul experienced. What an unspeakable, indescribable joy. And I mean that literally, unspeakable, indescribable. Because God forbids Paul to describe for us what he saw. And even if Paul had permission, human language is simply incapable of describing fully the beauty and glory of heaven. God gave Paul this privilege, this great joy, for his personal benefit. I think that's another reason why Paul does not tell us as much as we would like to hear. What Paul witnessed and what Paul learned about heaven was intended only for him and not for us. You see, God's purpose for Paul's life, his plan for Paul's life and in ministry involved constant opposition from both outside and now inside the church i can remember years ago when going to school in california southern california and sometimes playing volleyball with friends on the beach uh students would come by from a certain christian group wanting to share the gospel and i i find that very praiseworthy it was commendable and it was four spiritual laws that had started out God has a wonderful plan for your life. And I thought of that as I read, what was Paul's plan for his life? Well, it certainly was to experience the grace of God and salvation. He never stopped ceasing to thank God and be amazed by the wonder of God's grace to a Pharisee. But God's plan for his life involved opposition and suffering and persecution. He faced crushing challenges as a church planter, as a missionary, and profound suffering. And God has mercifully spared most of us, most Christians, from these kinds of trials. And so to strengthen Paul for his service and his sufferings, God graciously gave the apostle an experience of the future glory of heaven outside of the experience of other Christians. But along with that experience came a temptation. That leads us to the second point. That temptation for Paul was to become conceited. We see that in verse 7. God in his infinite wisdom knew that by giving Paul this revelation of heaven, this foretaste, this, this vision, this experience he might be tempted to pride, to become conceited. As he puts it in verse 7, conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations. It would be easy for Paul to begin to think that he was rising above the ordinary hardships and troubles of this life because he had been given such an unspeakably great privilege. So what what does God do? Paul says in verse 7, A thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Well, an awful lot of speculation has taken place since Paul wrote these words down through the centuries, trying to identify Paul's thorn in the flesh. And I think the most common explanations fall into kind of three major categories. First of all, Paul may be referring to a physical ailment because he mentions the little phrase, it was a thorn in the flesh. And so Bible scholars and Bible readers like us, we have wondered perhaps, is it a chronic disease of some kind that caused Paul pain, but even perhaps a measure of embarrassment, recurring attacks of malaria frequent migraine headaches, perhaps seizures of some kind, or serious eye problems that hampered his ministry, and the list goes on. The second category is some form of demonic harassment and activity behind the hostility and persecution that was directed against Paul. And the little phrase that Paul uses here, a messenger of Satan, might suggest that. And the third possibility is the constant interference of these false teachers who seemed to follow Paul everywhere he went, and perhaps even the opposition of his own countrymen, the Jews. Paul would go, his usual pattern was to go to the synagogue first and preach Christ as the long-promised, long-awaited Messiah. Some would believe through that mysterious operation of the Spirit of God Others resisted, and out he went and planted a Christian church around that nucleus of believers. Whatever it was, it's clear that this thorn was something that really threatened to overshadow Paul's life with constant pain and suffering. It was not just a minor irritant. Otherwise, Paul would not have pleaded with the Lord three times to take it away. The thorn... In the flesh was one of the weaknesses that Paul mentions in verse 9, where he says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. That leads me to a third point, the messenger of Satan in verse 7. Where did this thorn in the flesh come from? Well, Paul doesn't hesitate to identify it as a messenger from Satan given to harass me. And we learn here that at least some weaknesses come from Satan. Satan afflicts the children of God through his demonic messengers. And the Greek word Paul uses for messengers is angelos, which we translate into English, angel. In this case, a fallen angel belonging to Satan's kingdom. It's clear that Satan's aim, his intention for Paul, is destruction and misery and death. But that is not the whole answer. God is, Satan is not the only one at work here. God is at work. And the thorn is not just the work of Satan to destroy. In the hands of a sovereign God, ultimately it's the work of God to sanctify Paul. And we can see that for two reasons. First, because Paul describes the thorn, the purpose for the thorn, to keep him from becoming conceited. But we know that Satan's intention is always to produce pride, not to prevent pride in the believer's life. That is how Satan destroys. He seeks to stir up pride in what we've done or to somehow induce despair over what we have failed to do. Paul's revelations there in paradise, his visions, his experience, made him very vulnerable to pride. And so God is at work here using the hostile intentions of Satan for the purpose of Paul's growth in holiness. God humbles Paul and turns him away from conceit and from pride. So behind the work of Satan, it was God who appointed the thorn in the flesh given to Paul by a messenger of Satan for his growth in godliness. Just like it was with the Old Testament patriarch, Job. God permits Satan to afflict his righteous servant and then in the end turn that affliction for his good purposes. We need to grasp this very simple but profound lesson. Our weaknesses, and there are many, and I can assure you as we age, we become more painfully and acutely aware of them. Our weaknesses... Whether the source is the fall into sin that affects the entire human race, or whether they may may come more directly from Satan himself, they are nevertheless intended by God for our good. And that is why the truth of the doctrine of God's providence should become so precious to the believer in times of affliction and distress. To know that the most holy wise, powerful God is preserving and governing all his creatures and all of their actions. God is in control of Satan. And Satan can do nothing at all to God's children that God himself does not design with infinite wisdom and fatherly love for our good. My last point is simply to expand on God's purpose in our weakness. That's Point number four, God's purpose is to glorify the grace and power of Christ. And that is in verses 9 through 10. We read here that Paul prayed earnestly three times to the Lord to take away the thorn. He pleaded with the Lord. And the Lord answered Paul's prayer, but not in the way Paul expected The answer is this, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. What Paul asked for was very simple. He wanted relief. He wanted deliverance from the thorn. And God gave him relief, not by taking away the thorn, but by adding more grace, sufficient grace, as God puts it. The Lord promised Paul, that in the taking away of the thorn, in the distress, rather, caused by this messenger from Satan, Paul would always find a sufficient supply of God's grace to endure this thorn. And Paul learned a lesson. And it was not an easy lesson to learn. It involved pain, and apparently it involved humiliation of some kind of this thorn in his flesh. Paul learned the lesson that his life as the life of every believer is, is a showcase for the power of Christ. But it's not in the way that Paul initially asked for. It is not by simply getting rid of all of our weaknesses, but by giving the grace, giving the strength to endure and even to rejoice in our weakness. Paul says in verse 10, for the sake of Christ then, I am content. I'm content with weaknesses insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Many years ago, I had the privilege of, of uh, studying under a very beloved Old Testament professor uh, who, at times, he had experience as a pastor before he went on to study Old Testament and get a Ph.D. and teach in seminary. But he would frequently leave off lecturing and start preaching, <laughs> And I studied the book of Job under him. And I remember the professor shout. He would shout from time to time, let God be God. Let God be God. And that's the lesson that Job had to learn. And of course, we can say God will be God. It is true whether we embrace that by faith or we resent it and try to resist it. If it is God's will to show the perfection of Christ's power in our weakness instead of our escape from weakness, then God knows best. Trust Him. Trust Him. I think Hebrews chapter 11, that wonderful chapter on the heroes of faith, will help, help guide us here. As we come to the end of Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 34, the writer there says that by faith... By faith in Christ, by faith in the promises of God, some escaped the edge of the sword. And then he goes on to say in Hebrews 11, verse 37, Others, by faith, were killed by the sword. By faith, some stopped the mouths of lions. We think of Daniel in the lion's den. And by faith, some were sawn in two. And early Hebrew uh, legend tells us that may well have been... uh, the prophet uh, Isaiah, who was uh, sawn in two. By faith, some were mighty in battle, and by faith, others suffered chains and imprisonment. Brothers and sisters, the ultimate purpose of God in our weakness is to glorify the grace and the power that moved Christ to the cross and kept him there until the work of love for his people was finished until our sins were paid in full. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 23, that Christ crucified, which was the message Paul always preached, Christ crucified was foolishness to the Greeks. And it was a stumbling block to the Jews. But to those who are called, it is the power of God, and it is the wisdom of God. These are very hard truths to say to one another. They're hard truths for me to preach from, and yet I believe it's an accurate message that Paul is giving us from this chapter of Scripture. And I've had to learn and relearn, and even now I'm in the process of learning these lessons over and over again. I'm quick to forget, and I'm prone to wander. But let me say this. The deepest need that you and I have in weakness and adversity It's not not quick relief, but it's the well-grounded confidence and assurance that what is happening to us is not meaningless. It's part of the great eternal purpose of God in His universe, and that is to glorify the grace and the power of His Son. That grace and that power that enabled Christ in apparent weakness and humility to willingly embrace the cross to secure for us our everlasting salvation. That is what God is doing in our lives, in all of our weakness. And if we learn that lesson from Paul, and we're convinced of it, and we cling to it, and seek to preach it to ourselves daily, we can say together with Paul in verse 10, for the sake of Christ then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities, For when I am weak, then I am strong. We can rest in that perfect combination of God's sovereignty and His all-sufficient grace toward us. Let's pray. Father...